When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. And by Onyx Maps. Know where you stand. You're listening to the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome back to the show for episode number 34. You've heard it before, Pioneer Trials Camp. On X Maps, supporters of the Project Upland podcast, helping bring you, the listener, each and every episode. For that, we thank them. Check them out. Pioneer's Grouse Camp and Onyx Maps. Don't forget about GumleafUSA.com. Check out GumleafUSA.com. High-quality, premium, handcrafted rubber boots. Check them out. GumleafUSA.com. Use promo code PU2018. That's PU2018. GumleafUSA.com. This week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast gear giveaway is Brian Burke. Thank you for sharing the podcast episode, Brian. We appreciate it. And you could be next week's winner. Make a meaningful contribution to this show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the show. Share the podcast episodes. Any and or all of that stuff. We appreciate it and we thank you. And now, let's set up today's meaningful and interesting conversation it's a big one in the rough grouse hunting world if 
you are as passionate about rough grouse hunting as I am, you will most definitely have heard of some concerns regarding the rough grouse populations in the Great Lakes states, the cycles, the drumming counts, West Nile virus, all of it. There's a lot of uncertainty surrounding this topic. It's of great interest to me and a lot of my friends at the circles that I run in the people that I speak with, and I believe that this conversation today will be of interest to our fellow grouse hunters. Today I had the good fortune of chatting with Mark Wateka. He is the Upland Wildlife Ecologist Farm Bill Specialist for the Wisconsin DNR. We had an awesome conversation talking about spring drumming counts, rough grouse populations, factors that affect rough grouse mortality, rough grouse habitat. We dive into West Nile virus and we talk about the recent announcement of a potentially shortened rough grouse hunting season in Wisconsin this fall. The announcement came out about a week ago. Needless to say, it has fueled a lot of conversation around the internet in grouse hunting circles on forums on facebook groups as i said it is of great interest to many many grouse hunters and i believe this conversation will help to shed some light on some of the things that we know as well as many of the things that we do not know i hope you found it as informative as i did i hope you enjoy it let's welcome to the project upland podcast the upland wildlife ecologist for the wisconsin dnr mark witeka All right, here we go, Mark. Welcome to the Project Upton right. Podcast. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Nick. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and uh, certainly appreciate having you on the uh, on the Project Upton Podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation. We had we had spoken a couple weeks ago, um, prior to uh, prior to some some recent announcements, which we will certainly certainly dive into today. But uh, I, I, I got to imagine that your email slash voicemail box has, has been uh, pretty full lately. Is that the case, Mark? <laughs> uh, certainly the, uh, the emails and phone calls have picked up uh, a fair amount. Uh, I wouldn't say it's ringing off the hook, but um, we've certainly been hearing from, from some hunters and stakeholders on uh, what's going on with the rough grouse population here in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I understand that. I, I would imagine, you know, I, I mean, as a as a grouse hunter, this time of year is always interesting because we're always we're always anticipating the drumming counts and and people as people look ahead to the season. It's it's just another thing to you know to to get you get excited about. You see the counts and it, and it kind of sets the tone for the for the rest of the year. And so I think it's I think it's always exciting. This year obviously has has been a little bit interesting combined with last year. When you look at the last couple of years, it's been it's been a bit interesting. But but uh, we will we will definitely dive into that stuff. So I would imagine uh, it's it's been busy, but but probably not not too unusual for you. No, nope. You know, there's there's always some topic that's on people's minds that. Uh that they want to talk about related to upland games. So not, not unusual by any stretch. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's start here, Mark. Why don't you give the listeners a brief overview of, of your current position with the Wisconsin DNR and kind of how you wound up there? Sure. Yes. So, um, uh, currently I'm the upland wildlife ecologist and farm bill specialist with the Wisconsin department of natural resources. So cover many of our upland game species such as rough grouse, turkey, uh, pheasant, sharp-tailed grouse, prairie chickens. I also con- uh, cover some of our small game mammals as well, uh, cottontail rabbits, uh, snowshoe hares, and squirrels. So um, overall, um, 
responsible for for uh, program management of, of those species. That includes things like getting our regulations out on those species, um, the communications going out to the public, coordinating with uh, some of our researchers on, on the surveys that we do for our upland game species and uh, producing subsequent reports from those surveys. And then uh, certainly one of the big components of my job is working with the public and working with, uh, with our stakeholder groups to feed information out on the, the species that I manage and certainly to gather public input into the decision-making process. Uh, in terms of how I, I got into the position, I've always had a fairly strong interest in hunting, particularly upland game hunting. So um, I, uh, coming out of high school, knew that uh, wildlife biology was something that I wanted to do. It's always been a passion. I've always had a passion for the outdoors and for hunting. So in particular, I've always loved upland game hunting. I, uh, I, I suppose I could say that I prefer to be up and moving when I hunt. I like actively pursuing the species. <laughs> and so I'm a, I'm a bit more of a guy that likes to be up walking around behind a dog than, uh, than uh, say, sitting in a tree stand or a blind. So sure. um, that's always been a big draw for me, the, just the, the physical activity associated with upland hunting. And the other big draw for me, certainly, as I think it is for many other upland game hunters, is, is working with uh, pointing dogs. I, uh, I myself have a, a Llewellyn setter that my wife and I trained. And uh, it's just a really rewarding experience to go through that process with a dog from getting them as a rambunctious puppy and training and turning them into a, into a hunting dog and, and seeing them grow and, and thrive and uh, certainly then, you know, harvesting game and taking it back and, and uh, preparing a meal for your family with that game. So it's just a, a really neat cycle. And the, uh, the working with upland dogs has been one of the big, big draws for me into, into upland hunting. So... Um, knowing that I had this passion for wildlife, I knew from a pretty, pretty young age this is what I wanted to do. So uh, I grew up in the Wisconsin Dells area coming out of high school. I went to school at UW-Stevens Point, got my bachelor's degree in wildlife ecology, uh, worked some seasonal temporary jobs that more has most of us uh, wildlife professionals do coming out of school. you got to kind of earn your keep and, and get some experience first before uh, finding a full-time position. Um, and then uh, following a, a couple seasonal jobs, I went down to Texas A&M at Kingsville and got my master's degree in uh, range and wildlife management. And uh, following, following graduate school, I worked for Pheasants Forever for about two and a half years. And I, that's really where um, my, my love of upland game hunting, um, of working with upland dogs, uh, was really cemented for me. And uh, I worked in Kansas for Pheasants Forever for those uh, two and a half years before coming back home to, to Wisconsin and working with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. So I was a Jefferson County wildlife biologist for about two and a half years before taking this position as the upland wildlife ecologist. Awesome. That was a very uh, very detailed and thorough thorough background, Mark. It sounds like you've maybe uh, practiced that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I've had to give that spiel one or two times before. Yeah, <laughs> I I believe it. Well, I got to say, with that kind of that kind of background experience, upbringing, you fit right in here on the Project Upland podcast, talking pointy dogs and 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 setters and upland birds. I love it. That's that's great, and it's no surprise to see to see where you landed yourself today. <laughs> um, where are you based right now today? Um, I am based out of a. Uh, DNR Central Office in Madison. Okay. All right. DNR Central Madison. Sounds good. So, so Wisconsin boy, you grew up there. Did you always 
sort of have an inkling that you that you'd want to wind up back home in Wisconsin? Yeah, definitely. I, I'd say um, coming out of uh, out of school, you know, it was really tough to find a job at that time. And uh, I would say my long term career goal was certainly to get back home to family in Wisconsin, and uh, certainly just the love I have for this state. Um, so, so you know, just the abundance of natural resources, the abundance of public lands that we have, and uh, just the passion that everyone in the state seems to have for, for wildlife and, and conservation in general for our natural resources uh, really, really drew me back home. And uh, fortunately for me, I didn't have to wait nearly as long into my career to, to get home as I thought I might. So happy to be back home in Wisconsin and working with the good people of Wisconsin on, on wildlife conservation issues. Excellent. That's awesome. So back in the back in the Wisconsin Dells days, the early days, it sounds like you started hunting back then. Was it a family thing? How did you how did you how did you get into upland hunting? Yeah, so I, I started hunting as, as certainly a family activity. Um, uh, hunting and angling both, you know, going on fishing trips to Canada with my dad, okay. deer hunting with my father. Um, my my dad, my family, they weren't real big into upland game hunting, mostly deer hunting, so that's something I kind of dove into a little later in, in life in my, in my 20s when uh, maybe I had some of the, the means, the ability to uh, do something like purchase and, and train an upland pointing dog and, and get myself a nice shotgun and, and uh, have a car that I'd be able to drive around and, and actually do some hunting with. So <laughs> um, got into, yeah, so I got into hunting at an early age, but got into uh, upland hunting more in my, in my 20s. Gotcha. And how old is the setter now today? She just turned seven a couple months ago, so I'm thinking it's probably time to start looking for a new puppy. Oh yeah, you and me, you and me both. Mine is mine. <laughs> mine just turned four, and I have uh, I've always had seven as the magic number in my head, and that's from an old uh, coworker when I was at the Rough Grouse Society. He seven was his number. I don't know that seven is my number yet, but that was his number because he felt. That that gave him the best chance of of having a nice mix of age, but then in all likelihood, probably not having three dogs in the house for very long, which which I think was a, I think is a concern for many of us. So, sometime between now and and the next three years, it'll be it'll be another one for me too. Where are you gonna go? Are you gonna go setter for the next one? I think I'm I'm pretty sold on the setter. Yep, I uh, I don't see that changing. Awesome. So down in Madison now. When you and the setter get out hunting, what uh, what does that look like? Are you driving north to hunt grouse? Are you are you getting on pheasants down there? What are you doing? All of the above. I uh, I get out any opportunity I can up when bird hunts. Um, I I do like to make it out rough grouse hunting several times a year. I usually go up towards the uh, Lincoln Langley County areas uh, to do my grouse hunting okay. and hunt with some friends and colleagues up there. Uh, but certainly I'll. I get up uh, bright and early and try and get out before work or, or after work to hunt pheasants down down south here as well, and uh, certainly hunt turkeys in the in the area here too. So excellent, excellent. Well, it's always nice to communicate with with members of the DNR, and and typically, I know in my experience, I have found that the ones that I work with, especially the wildlife biologists, I mean, they talk the talk, but they walk the walk, and they they get out and enjoy the outdoors just like everybody else. And so I always. I always, I always find that interesting and fun, and, and, and I knew it was something that you were into just from kind of our previous conversation, so I wanted to highlight that a little bit. Sure. Well, 
let's uh, let's let's dive into to some of the some of the more recent and current events that that we promised the listeners we would talk about uh, this time of year. As as we discussed earlier, it is typical for the drumming counts to come out on rough grouse, and I guess I guess we don't need to go too far down this path without uh, laying some groundwork. Let's let's just start with the overview. Give us the high level. Uh, tell us about the drumming survey, and then specifically what the results were this year. Sure, yes. So every year we have uh, DNR staff and volunteers that go out into the field and survey random points throughout the state for drumming rough to grouse. Uh, this year we had about a 34% decline statewide from 2017 to 2018. Um, we, we break our survey routes down into four different regions, the northern forest, the central forest, and then there's southwestern and southeastern Wisconsin. So our, uh, our regions uh, pretty much were, were down across the board. The central forest was down 29%. Northern forest was down 38%. And southwestern Wisconsin was down about 14%. In the southeast, it showed that we were up 100%. However, I would uh, I would note that we have uh, very low grouse densities in southeastern Wisconsin, so sometimes simply picking up one additional bird on a route could uh, fairly significantly uh, change the uh, the outcome of the survey from one year to another. So across the board, we were we were pretty much down in drumming uh, drumming grouse. In the, in the north, that's where we tend to focus a lot of our, our attention is to the north woods. It's our area where we've been, been able to maintain a lot of that young forest habitat for grouse, maintain an active uh, timber industry. So, again, we tend to focus our, our attention to the northern uh, part of the state where we've seen a fairly uh, predictable and stable uh, 10-year population cycle in our grouse population up there. Yeah, absolutely. And I would, I would point to... Uh, video that you released on Facebook for the listeners if they're looking for some more specific information and some charts and some graphs on on the actual drumming counts this year you guys put that out on the Wisconsin DNR Facebook page and that's that's kind of where I actually first got the information of this year so I would I would encourage people to check that out if they have um, absolutely if, if they and want then, to uh, I would well, um, I would also uh, direct people to uh, if you go to the DNR's webpage and type in wildlife reports that brings up some of the reports from the various surveys that we do, and the uh, 2018 Rough Grouse Drumming Survey is there as well, which would provide greater detail on the, the results this year. Perfect. Yeah, check that out. So, we have we have a we have a significant decline this year. Now that is being compared to last year. Now I don't expect you to re- remember exactly the numbers. Uh, of last year's survey, but last year we had a significant increase in the drumming counts over 2016, correct? Correct, yeah. It appeared, you know, so in the in terms of the grouse cycle, um, in 2000, in years that end in zero is usually our high points in the cycle. So 2000, 2010, and then the low points in the cycle usually fall in years that end in five. So 2005, 2015. So the, uh, the population, um, did kind of reach the trough, the bottom of the, uh, the cycle in 2015, came up slightly in 2016, and then uh, came up a, a fair amount in 2017, but then did decline from 2017 to 2018. Yeah, exactly. Now, one question that I have regarding those percentages, are they 
can you can you give me a little bit more information on on how the percentages are based? Are the is it a year over year percentage so that this year's thirty eight percent decrease in the northern region is that directly off of last year's high level, or are they based off something else? Because because I've heard contrasting opinions on on how the percentages are calculated. Yeah, no that that is a percent annual change. So that's. Uh the 34% decrease that we saw statewide, that is from 2017 to 2018, okay. the numbers decreased. So generally, when, when talking about wildlife populations, we, we try and not focus on single-year events and instead focus more on long-term trends. But, um, you know, certainly this single-year event that we observed from 2017 to 18 has, has uh, garnered quite a bit of attention. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so that's a, that's a, that's certainly a, certainly a big move year over year. But one thing I'm a, I, I tend to be a, a, a finance guy in, in my, uh, my professional life. So I, I, uh, I look at the trends, I look at the numbers and, uh, you know, that percentage of a decrease, although it's significant and large when it's, when it's being calculated off of the significant increase the year prior, the impact has to be kind of taken into consideration. And if you, and if you did a good job of highlighting this on the video because you showed some of the charts, if you look at the actual chart of the drumming counts, the level that we're at this year, despite it being a significant decrease last year, the level that we're at is still, you know, it's still significantly above some of the, some of the historic lows. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that's why we talk a bit more about longer term trends than, uh, than year to year changes. So, um, when you look just from 2017 to 18, it can be a bit alarming. We did have this unexpected decline. Um, again, you know, the, the population tends to peak in years that end in zero, so we figured 2020 would be the next peak. Um, however, this, this unexpected decline is not the only anomaly we've seen in the population cycle over the last several years. Uh, in 2015, when the, when the population should have been at the trough, a low point in the cycle, um, we did reach the low point in this cycle, however, it was uh, nearly double what a typical trough would be. So we never really hit a low point like we expected in 2015. So when we began the increasing phase of this cycle, um, we were significantly higher than a, a, the population would normally be at that point in the cycle um, based off of previous cycles that we've observed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's that's one of the things that's it's pretty clear to see it when you when you do take a step back and look at that that longer term snapshot. But uh, not to uh, not to minimize the the significance of of what we've got going on. The other thing the other thing that I I hear some confusion on, and and it's and it, I think it probably is in our nature as, as hunters, and we like to get excited in our expectations. But ultimately, the the grouse drumming count survey is a survey of adult male birds, which is, first of all, it's not a census. It's not a count of exactly how many grouse are in the woods. It's, it's taken into consideration the adult male birds and it leaves, it leaves a lot of open-ended questions. There are a lot of other variables that, that determine what we find in the fall. Correct? Absolutely. Yep. Definitely. Definitely. So yeah, it's, um, it's what we would call a population index. So we're not counting birds. We're not um, providing an estimate of the population. It's uh, it's more so just giving us an index of the population, a snapshot of uh, of what's happening out on the landscape. So again, uh, these population indices. It's something we generally do 
like to take a look at over long terms rather than an, on, on a year-to-year basis because there are so many other variables that can impact your surveys. Uh, you know, weather being a, a perfect one. If uh, if you have extensive uh, poor conditions for surveying, as an example, it may come uh, come out looking like the population is down, where instead it was uh, more of a matter of detection in your in your survey routes. Certainly, and the other the other interesting thing, I think at play this year was given the significant increase in drumming counts in 2017, we all went out in the woods and hunted last fall. And anecdotally speaking, I mean, it's, it's not, we're not breaking news here. Anecdotally speaking, the, the bird numbers that people found in the woods last year didn't measure up to what the drumming counts, you you know, led us to believe. I don't want to say led us to believe what the drumming counts indicated could be potential for for a lot of birds sure. in the woods last year and i think it's it's pretty well confirmed that anecdotally we didn't necessarily find that so when i when we fast forward to the drumming counts this spring i almost don't know that that it's really as surprising because has anything changed i mean we know that we know that the birds we know that the birds were not there last fall so we should almost expect that decrease in drumming counts this this spring, it doesn't necessarily mean that anything additional happened over the winter of of 2017-2018. Correct. Yes, I, I think it. Um, you know, the drumming counts ultimately confirmed the the reports that um, we were getting from from hunters that uh, you know folks just weren't seeing the birds out there that they expected based on uh, increased uh, drumming and brood survey counts from last year. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's kind of where I was going with that. And and I guess. I guess I, I bring that up because I'm always I say this to any anybody that I talk to really in that you know you have to you have to consider all factors involved in in the drumming survey and realize what they are and what they aren't. So with that said, I think the right transition would be so we have the drumming counts that come out in the spring. Mm-hmm. That's a long time before opening day in the fall. So correct. Yep. Wa- walk me through walk me through the factors at play from the time the spring drumming counts come out and opening day, all of the things that, that can influence uh, bird numbers and mortality rates through the summer. Because it's a, like I said, it's a long time before, before we, we get out in the woods for opening day. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so, you know, following the, the spring drumming counts, that's kind of capturing the beginning of the breeding season. Um, the, the drumming counts are ultimately an observation of, uh, uh, of breeding adult male grouse in the in the population in the state of Wisconsin, so um, that's that's kind of giving you a snapshot of the the breeding population, what's out there. Um, but really, in terms of impacts to what hunters see in the fall, the next couple stages in the grouse life cycle are ultimately what's most important for determining what you're going to see in the in the grouse woods, and that's going to be the nesting and brood rearing seasons. Um, in, in spring and early summer, you know, nesting is, is occurring and, um, poor nesting conditions certainly can impact populations, uh, particularly, uh, wet, wet conditions. Uh, some research has shown that, uh, wetter conditions lead to increased, uh, nest depredation. And then another very critical, uh, stage in, in the grouse life cycle is, is the brood rearing season, which occurs throughout the summer. That's when the the hens are are raising the uh, the chicks, and um, you know the the survival of those uh, broods is ultimately what's gonna what's gonna determine what you see out in the in the woods that fall. 
and uh, brewdering uh, can also be impacted by things like cool temperatures and, and uh, rainy weather. The, the chicks are not great at thermal regulating their body temperature, and that means that uh, that cool temperatures, especially if they're mixed with rain, uh, can really wreak havoc on grouse production as those chicks just are not able to regulate their body temperature and uh, can, can perish to hypothermia. So the nesting and brooding conditions are really important to uh, in determining what you're going to see out in the grouse woods on an annual basis. Is there a is there a given kind of time frame? I I've always heard you know June June is certainly a critical month for grouse chicks. Is there kind of a time frame where we're really concerned with with wet and cold conditions? Yeah, I'd say June and uh, June is definitely the big month. That's where you're expecting that uh, that peak hatch and where you're going to have those young chicks on the landscape that uh, that are susceptible to things like hypothermia. Yeah, certainly, and and. Like this year, I, I'm in Duluth, so I'm I'm near and I hunt northern Wisconsin. I'm I'm up here. We we had some pretty significant rainfall in in northwestern Wisconsin this year. We had a couple of you know really a historic historic rain event a couple of weeks ago. It was pretty pretty unbelievable. But that said, anecdotally speaking, it hasn't been all that cold. I, you know, I'm, I'm certain that I'm certain that there was there was some damage done with with some of those rains because they were just they were just so great. But if let's say a, let's say a nest got washed out a couple of weeks ago, will a grouse can she renest? Will she renest? Yes, yeah, they they will attempt to renest if it's early enough in the season. Yep. Okay. All right, and I and I. And and just again, anecdotally speaking, I've got a I've got a friend that's a, he's a county forester, and he was out uh, shortly thereafter the the significant rain event, and he saw he was out in the woods one day and saw four broods. So it doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily mean you know if we get a heavy rainfall like that, it doesn't mean they're all gone, but but it can certainly can certainly have a big effect. And I know that after the drumming counts came out and and we got hit with some of those rains i mean there's there's a lot of people that are concerned and uh, and that's not even we haven't even really touched on the x factor which is west nile virus which we will get to but uh all that to say there are there are many factors that influence the grouse population from from spring to to fall for sure sure do you have do you have an opinion as to you know i know it's a big state but do you have an opinion as to how? Because it was kind of an odd spring. I felt like it was a late spring. Uh, I get up here in the far northwest. Do you have an opinion as to how the spring season played out and and up until today for the for the state in general? You know, really tough to say. Um, we're in the midst of doing our, our brood surveys right now, so I guess time will tell um, how the the nesting and brooding seasons are are shaking out here. Um, I. I would like to think that uh, the late onset of spring that we, we saw likely didn't impact grouse too terribly much. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the, the nesting activity um, likely comes after that. I think there, there certainly could have been some impact, especially on early nesting birds. But um, just the quickness in which we warmed up, we, uh, we almost went from winter directly to summer, it seemed like, this year. So yep, I, I, I think any, any birds that may have been stressed from the, the late lingering effects of winter um, maybe saw some fairly quick relief this year, I'm hoping, um, with some of the quicker green up we had, uh, given the, the quick warm up that we had as well. Yeah, absolutely. It really was a it really was a quick transition, and and we had some we had some kind of late winter events in in early April, but then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. that uh, it was like 
uh, about a week really and and pretty much said well it's uh it's warmed up and, and it's <laughs> starting to green up and so yeah i think i think that was you know early on early on optimism but but there's so many things and, sure. and you can you can look at you can look at every every event isolated and then you know again it's a grouse country covers a lot of area and a lot of territory and and there's always variances and differences you know across across a across the states, across the regions within the states and and all of that stuff factors in. Yep. Absolutely. And I'm I you know, I, I did take note we this is kind of the third summer in a row we've had some fairly significant rainfall uh right during grouse uh, brood rearing season. Yep. And so um I do have some concerns about what what impact that might have had, but again we're we're doing our bird surveys right now, and I guess uh, time will tell if, if those rains had any impact. But uh, we've had some pretty, you know, historic um, flooding events even in the in the northwest there uh, just in the last few years where roads have been washed out and getting 9 to 12 inches in a single rain event in these last few years. So yeah. those sorts of things definitely can impact um, uh, upland game bird broods. Yeah, absolutely. Tell, tell me a little bit more about the brood surveys because I feel like, Maybe, uh, maybe I, I just, you don't hear, you don't hear as much about the brood surveys and, and everybody looks towards the drumming counts, but, but I don't, mm-hmm. I'm almost more interested in the brood surveys. Tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah. I think people will probably be paying a little extra attention to, um, uh, this year, given the interest in, in, uh, in grouse that a lot of folks are, are having right now. Um, our brood surveys are run, uh, 10 weeks throughout the summer and, uh, they're, they're conducted by, uh, DNR field staff. Basically they're, they're, um, Opportunistic surveys while folks are out and about doing their daily activities, they they note on one of our forums if they're uh, if they've observed any any uh, upland game bird broods, which uh, which species that is, how many adults, how many uh, chicks, and uh, that gives us kind of a again a year to year index of uh, reproduction for our, our various upland game birds. So so we're talking we're talking across species, and it's more. It's, it sounds like it's more random because because it's not a it's not necessarily an organized survey, but people are just sort of observationally reporting. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. So it is it is observational. So you know things can uh, we standardize it so um, it's uh, observations per observer hour. Um, okay. So it does provide some standardized metric to compare from year to year. But it is it is at the end of the day um, an, an opportunistic survey that. Um, that folks just uh, provide data to us on as they're they're out and about doing their daily activities. Certainly, and then is that information is that information publicized anywhere? Does it, I mean, do you have a historical look at things? Because I feel like that would that would open up some interesting data points and, and questions. Really, absolutely, yes. It's a, a survey that's been conducted for a number of years, um, and uh, we do uh, pro- uh, provide reports annually on the on the brood. Uh, survey that's done. It's called the Ten Week Summer Brood Observations, and uh, that can also be found on the Wisconsin DNR Wildlife Reports page. Okay. Do you do you happen to recall what that brood survey for rough grouse indicated last year? I just I'm just curious. Um, I do remember the the brood count was up. Okay. But I don't remember exactly how much it was. Um, I believe it was maybe somewhere in the. 16 to 19 percent range if i'm remembering correctly 
Okay. So that would that would fall in line with increase in drumming counts, you got an increase in brood surveys and and then we kind of we kind of know the story from there, but but that would be that'd be a very curious thing that give us give us hunters another data point to to sort of gauge how the off season went and and what we found in the fall. It's very interesting. Sure, yep. Well, let's 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 just welcome into the conversation the X factor and and that being West Nile virus because if if you're a passionate grouse hunter and you hadn't heard about it prior to last year, uh, it's more than likely we've heard about it now today. So let's start with the basics, Mark. Can you what do we know about West Nile virus? What is it? How long has it been here? And what is it doing right now that we know? Sure. Um, in Wisconsin, West Nile virus has been present for nearly 20 years now. Um, and it is um, highly variable in its impacts to different species. It uh, does impact a lot of other bird species, in particular uh, corvids, things like blue jays and, and crows. Uh, it has a, a fairly high virulence rate with, uh, with some of those species. Um, in grouse, it's not been studied much, though. Uh, in the in the last several years, Pennsylvania has had some concerns. Some of the eastern states have had some concerns. Uh, where West Nile virus has been present uh, a few years longer than here in Wisconsin, and they have done some research. Uh, for example, in a in a controlled laboratory setting, um, they actually had uh, inoculated birds with the uh, with West Nile virus and saw some uh, pretty dramatic effects in terms of mortality rates. Now. Um, you know, I'll mention that they were, these were uh, pretty young chicks that were exposed, so it's tough to, to take the laboratory analysis and say that that's exactly what would occur on the landscape, but uh, it's certainly something that, uh, that alarmed uh, some of the biologists watching what's happening with, with uh, rough grouse populations out east. So generally, you know, some of the symptoms that you see include um, just inactivity, um, kind of almost a lack of fear of humans or, or um, lacking energy to be able to get away from, from humans, so possibly lacking flight. Um, and then certainly um, if you were to uh, do a necropsy in the bird, you might see some, some lesions, for example, on the heart as well. So um, again, you know, but other species such as turkey, it doesn't appear to have any effect on, on these other species. So it, it does vary depending on the, the species you're talking about. Interesting. So, so in that study where they inoculated chicks, those were rough grouse chicks. Those were rough grouse chicks. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so Pennsylvania has really been kind of the the leading uh, agency, I'd say, on on exploring impacts of West Nile virus on rough grouse because uh, out east the populations of rough grouse have have been declining for nearly forty years, I'll say. And so they've, they've been watching, uh, you know, these different sources of mortality and things associated with their rough grouse population. And um, one of the outcomes of the research that they've been doing was that um, it seems to be in areas where there's poor quality habitat, where the rough grouse populations are, are being hit particularly hard by, by the virus, uh, apparently, in, uh, in Pennsylvania there. Yeah, yeah, ha- habitat habitat is is obviously a, a critical factor and i i want to touch on that a little bit um we'll dive into that but circling back on west nile virus in particular do we know and does the virus will the virus make the bird sick such that it will kill the bird or 
will it weaken the bird, you know, say weaken the bird and make it more susceptible to dying by any other other number of factors? Will, will West Nile virus actually kill an adult rough grouse? Do we know that? Um, you know, that's something that I think is just not well studied at this point. Okay. Um, I think, um, you know, given the research that was done, there's probably potential for uh, young of the year to, to experience direct mortality from the virus. Um, and certainly the, the symptoms that can be exhibited by a bird that's um, uh, infected with West Nile virus would open it up to uh, easier depredation as an example. Or, so there's, you know, a secondary, secondary, you know, source of mortality associated with that. Okay. I bring that up really because I've, I don't know, I don't know how much time you spend hanging around in, in Upland uh, internet forums and, and face. Facebook groups, Mark, but recently, you know, of course, a lot of the stuff is going to trigger lots of discussion. A lot of it's healthy and, uh, and, uh, a lot of it can, can, you know, get side sidetracked and get off into the weeds a little bit, but starting to hear anecdotal reports of people that, you know, in the last year or two finding, finding dead birds in, in the woods. And I actually, first time ever in my life, two years ago, this was the fall of 2016, I was walking through the woods uh, on a hunt and found a dead grouse at my feet and I inspected it. It seemed to be in pretty good shape. I immediately assumed that it was, that it was shot and crippled by a crippled by another hunter. And I, I don't recall, I don't recall really inspecting that bird up and down. Uh, but I, I did pick it up and we kind of, we looked at it and I just assumed that it was a, it was a crippled bird and shot by another hunter and we weren't very far off a hunter walking trail. So that's a very logical scenario, but, but you, mm-hmm. you're, I, I'm hearing stories of people finding birds and they say that they've, they've looked them over and cannot find a single pellet hole in them. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and so I don't mean to get too far down that road really, but I think it would be, I think it would be very easy. You know, it doesn't take more than a pellet to kill a bird. And I think it would be very easy to, to not find uh, a pellet, but you know, that's, that stuff is out there. And and I think it's, I think it's just interesting to, to sort of look back at, at our experiences through this new lens of, you know, maybe there was a bird that we saw that wasn't as strong of a flyer. And like you said, it it hasn't been studied that much, but I think people are going to be paying a lot more attention this fall for sure. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And yeah, yeah, we did get uh, a couple reports came in kind of after the season had closed up of folks finding uh, birds that appeared to be ill. And, uh, you know, one of the other big symptoms, too, is the birds will be extremely emaciated, very, very thin, uh, not a lot of breast meat on the on the breastplates there. So that's a, another possible indicator of, of West Nile virus. Yeah, I know. I've definitely seen a I've definitely seen a picture circulating around the Internet, maybe from Michigan. You've probably seen it, Mark, where they show two rough grouse sort of next to each other and they're opened up and you can see the one, the one on the left side has like really emaciated, like almost nothing to the breast meat. And, uh, I don't, I, I honestly don't recall if, if they confirmed in that article that yes, that had West Nile virus. I'm not sure. Do you recall that? Um, I, I believe I've seen the picture you were, you were discussing in it. Um, I, I most recently saw it in a, um, in a publication that I believe the Minnesota DNR put out, but I, I'm not sure if that bird was ever confirmed to have West Nile virus or not. Gotcha. Okay. Well, all right, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, we could talk about what's happening and we can speculate all day, but let's talk a little bit about what, what is going to happen this year 
with respect to West Nile virus and and testing? Because I know you and I talked about that a little bit, and we want to make sure that we put it out there. What's what's the plan this year to investigate further and try to get a handle on what's actually happening? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so. You know, one thing I guess we can't say at this point is the cause of the decline. Um, we simply don't have any any scientific evidence to, to confirm that West Nile virus or, or any other single factor or combination of factors uh, ultimately led to the, the decline in grouse that we saw. So one thing we'll be looking at this fall is, uh, is launching a West Nile virus monitoring effort. This is a, a collaborative effort we're doing. Um, at a regional level with our, our neighbors in uh, Minnesota and Michigan. And uh, ultimately what we'll be doing is uh, engaging hunters, working with hunters uh, to try and get samples from the birds that they've harvested uh, to get uh, a baseline of, uh, of West Nile virus prevalence here in our rough grouse population in the state of Wisconsin. Okay. And, and when you say we're going to be working on getting a baseline that that is really due to the fact that the testing historical testing is is almost non-existent we really haven't we really haven't done a lot of testing on rough grouse and and we mentioned that that we just there hasn't been a lot of studies on it that's that is that correct that's correct yeah we've we've had eight rough grouse uh submitted for sampling over the last oh i'll say 10 to 15 years okay um the the few grouse that have been submitted all tested negative um, I think the, the lack of samples is, is probably due to a number of factors, uh, perhaps first and foremost just simply being that, um, you know, at times when, when West Nile virus is, is peaking, which is uh, typically late summer, uh, folks aren't necessarily hitting grouse habitat very hard. We, we uh, at least I, seldom venture into, uh, into thick grouse habitat outside of the rough grouse season. So um, I, I think there's probably, you know, uh, an element of, of just the bird being in, in very thick habitat, being fairly secretive, well camouflaged, that we probably didn't get a, a lot of samples submitted in the past. Um, but also, to I guess, to, to be frank, we um, never really saw a need to be concerned about West Nile virus in our grouse population. Uh, you know, again, when looking at our core population in the north, they've been very stable following a fairly predictable 10-year cycle up until, uh, you know, the I'd say 2015 or so. And uh, with West Nile virus being present in the state for nearly 20 years, um, there were never really any, any concerns raised prior to, to this year about West Nile virus in rough grouse. Um, and so there's, uh, you know, I guess there wasn't a, a huge need to, to test in the past because, again, the virus was present but didn't really seem to be having any, any uh, impacts on the population. So Certainly, yeah, that, that's, you know, Things change over time, and and that's why that's why we're talking about it here today for sure. But you, we, you know, we've tested tested eight birds over the course of how many years? I mean, that's that's pretty pretty scientifically insignificant, and and probably should not be should not be read into one way or the other. But uh, but the point will be that right. that will be will be working on that on that baseline this year. How can how can hunters help in at least what you know of of I know I know the details are still being worked out, but what do you sure. what do you envision uh, Hunter's role will be in in uh, facilitating the study this fall? Sure, um, certainly we'll uh, we'll be looking to hunters to uh, help provide samples. So we'll be putting some testing supply kits together that we'll uh, we'll make available to hunters. We're still working through some of the details on how those um, those kits will be made available to folks. But uh, 
again, ultimately we, we do expect that we'll be, we'll be working with hunters, uh, for them to be able to, to pick up these sampling kits, um, take the blood samples that are required, possibly some tissue samples, and then, uh, get those sent in, uh, for laboratory analysis. So, um, certainly another way that hunters could, uh, could get involved even from, from, you know, this point in time right now is, uh, if you are out, and about, uh, you know, maybe walking forest trails or, or possibly even venturing into, into grouse habitat this summer, um, if you do experience any birds that are either dead or appear sick, um, I would note the location and contact your local DNR wildlife biologist because if we do have sick or dead uh, bird observations, we can also sample those as well if we get to the the sample in time. Uh, they... they uh, can fairly quickly get past the point where we can sample them, especially with warmer temperatures. But, uh, you know, if folks are, are finding any sick or dead birds this summer, I would, uh, I would uh, highly recommend contacting your local wildlife biologist and reporting the location of that bird to them. Excellent. Great, uh, great information there. What, what is that? What is that sampling window like? I mean, what happens? Does, does the bird just becomes, how is it, how is it not able to be sampled after a certain amount of time? Well, I think it's probably just a matter of uh, decomposition okay. that um, okay. the virus becomes less detectable, I would imagine, as the tissue degrades. Got it. What does this, what does the sampling process look like? What could a hunter, what are we going to be doing? I mean, we're going to be uh, drawing blood or, or what exactly does the West Nile virus sample, what does it entail? Well, it, it kind of depends on the different analyses that are done. Um, one thing that we'll certainly be uh, conducting is blood sampling. So uh, there's a, a small blood sampling uh, strip of paper that would be provided in the test kits. And all a hunter would need to do is, while field dressing the bird, um, is to uh, allow that paper to absorb uh, a small amount of blood. And then that could be uh, put into a, a a baggie and, and uh, sent back for laboratory analysis. Okay. Um, we're looking at some other options that might be available too in, in testing that might give us some additional information, which might include uh, providing a tissue sample. So, for example, providing the heart of a rough grouse. Um, but some of those details are just the, the final details that we're working through right now. But we expect to wrap up um, our final proposal here on this monitoring effort in the next week or so, and we'll be communicating out about how hunters can get involved uh, sometime this month here in, in July. Okay. Awesome. Well, we'll look forward to certainly more information on that. One more thing before we kind of transition a little bit off of West Nile virus. The, I want to I get this out there in that a rough girls can be infected by West Nile virus and it can survive because I've read, you read about some rough grouse having West Nile virus antibodies. Talk, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that in that, you know, if a grouse gets infected, it doesn't necessarily mean that that, that grouse is going to die and every other grouse that gets West Nile is going to die. I mean, is there a scenario in which rough grouse adapt and figure out how to, how to fight off this West Nile virus and the population, you know, rebounds and is, is able to fight off West Nile virus in the future? Sure, yes. So um, with the blood sampling, we'll, we'll be looking for those antibodies in, in the bloodstream of these birds. So that's exactly what we'll be, we'll be testing for with the blood sample. Um, as far as a, uh, you know, population's ability to, to adapt to a virus, you know, that's, that's impossible to say. I, I would sure. think at this point 
there's, you know, we know very little, I think, about um, whether um, those antibodies could be passed on to chicks, as, as another example. I think, you know, there's some biological processes where that could be possible, but we just simply don't know at this point. So, um, but certainly, yes, um, you know, there's um, not every bird that's infected is, is going to perish because of this virus. Um, and uh, again, there's been some research done on, uh, you know, mortality rates associated with the virus, but it was a very small sample done in a laboratory setting that to quite young birds. So it's, it's tough to take those results and apply them to a uh, natural population with a higher percentage of adults and, um, you know, just in a very different, uh, different setting. So. Okay. Appreciate that, Mark. And, and uh, obviously more to come on this issue. And I know that myself and uh, all the other grouse hunters and, and concerned upland hunters, we were, I'm sure will be, uh, you guys will have an outpouring of support and people wanted to help test. And, and I mean, if, if, if we know one thing, we know that we need to, uh, we need to learn a little bit more about what's going on. That's for sure. Absolutely. And I'd, I'd uh, be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity to to thank grouse hunters for the uh, the outpouring of support they've already showed, I've uh, I'd say one of the most common comments I've gotten from from grouse hunters on the on the whole uh, you know grouse population in general in these last several months has been simply folks wanting to help out and get involved. So yeah. there's been an hour outpouring of support from the grouse hunting community that I've been very thankful for. Yeah, absolutely. the 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 scary thing would be if if people were not concerned and people didn't care, and that's that's clearly clearly not the case. So so we have that going for us. Well, we we've got to transition because we've got to cover this, whether it's related, unrelated, or a little bit of both. We've had some we've had some news since you and I first discussed. We I first contacted you because I wanted to have you on and just talk about the drumming counts. Well, all of a sudden last week there was a an announcement of a potential shortening of the wisconsin grouse season now typically the wisconsin rough grouse hunting season in the northern zone ends january 31st of the following year now the announcement came out last week suggesting that the potential end of the season could be november 30th of this year give us uh give us a high level of, of what's going on here mark Sure. Uh, so ultimately, the Wisconsin Conservation Congress, which is a citizen advisory board to the department, made the recommendation to the Natural Resources Board to, to end the season uh, November 30th rather than the normal end date of, of uh, January 31st. I think it's safe to say that the Wisconsin Conservation Congress's concerns uh, came out of some of the research that's coming out of Pennsylvania associated with West Nile virus and rough grouse. Um, and certainly just the 2017 rough grouse season not quite meeting the expectations that folks had given the, the drumming counts that we had and then uh, the, the subsequent decline that we saw in the 2018 drumming surveys. Okay, so this is a, this is a proposed change. Tell us how, how, this, could come, how this could become a, an official change and, and, and or how it, it might not. Sure. So I guess just to walk you through the process here, the, the motion that was made by the Natural Resources Board was to uh, draft an emergency rule which would shorten the, the rough grouse season by approximately two months. So um, that motion was made, so the department has to uh, produce what's called a scope statement, and that scope statement then goes to the governor's office for signature. So um, that's one step that uh, I think we're currently in um, is that uh, scope statement going to the governor for signature. 
if it does make it out of the governor's office, then it would be taken back up at the August 8th Natural Resources Board meeting. And um, I think it would ultimately get the, the uh, final approval there. And um, at, that, at that Natural Resources Board meeting also on August 8th would be an opportunity for folks to provide, uh, to provide input on that. That's where the opportunity for public input would, would come. So if folks are interested in uh, providing any comments on this proposal, they could uh, go to the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources website uh, go to the Natural Resources Board page and uh, utilize the contact information there to uh, to submit opinions, or could also show up to the meeting in person and provide public testimony. Okay, so 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 essentially, two things two things likely need to happen for this to become an official change to the season. It had to go through the governor's office. At which point, do you know if there would there be a would there be notice given when when that sort of uh, step is is met? Um, you know, I'm not, uh, this is the first time I've gone through an emergency rule, um, and I'm not a hundred percent sure on whether notification is given or not. Um, I think ultimately it would, it would be back on the agenda at the natural resources board, uh, natural resources board meeting on August 8th. And, uh, that agenda is, uh, and meeting is public notice. So that would be available on their website in advance. Okay. All right. So most important thing that I want to highlight on this podcast at this time is that is that this change is not in place. The season the season dates have not officially changed at this time. That's correct, Mark. Yes, yes. Um, we're um, we're waiting for this process to to complete uh, before we would for say, say update the regulations as an example. And I think one other important thing to note too is that as an emergency rule, this would only go into effect for the 2018 season. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily apply to future seasons as well. Yeah, good, good point. Good point that it would that it would be for this year and and not necessarily uh, indefinitely going forward. Now, in the article that was released uh, that sort of outlaid some of this stuff, there was a little bit of mention as to you know where I'm going with this is is ultimately okay. So we're going to shorten the season two months. What I want to know is the motivation behind shortening two months and and what's what that is going to accomplish now i'm just looking for i know that that i don't think you filed this motion mark so i'm not looking for you to speak for anybody else but can you give us some insight as to what the the people that that file this motion what are they attempting to accomplish by shortening the season for two months yes well so again it was the uh the Wisconsin Conservation Congress that uh, that officially made this recommendation, and I think ultimately they're they're trying to trying to limit harvest mortality on the on the population. The, the hope there is that by shortening the season, um, that uh, less grouse mortality would occur and more birds might be available um, next spring and uh, during the breeding season. I, th- I think that I think it's fairly safe to say that's what their their hope is. Okay. And so as a, as a lifelong rough grouse and woodcock hunter, I, I, the first thing that comes to mind is, and, and really I speak from personal experience in that the amount of rough grouse hunting that I've done after November 30th is, is significantly less than, than the amount I've done in September, October, and November. And so I think a lot of people are, are asking the question, you know, there's there's so little pressure in the woods at that time how much how much 
you know, how many birds are we saving by cutting cutting off those those two months? And I and I know that that it's you you can only you can only give your your perspective and opinion, but but do you have any thoughts on that, Mark? Yeah, you know it, it's really tough to say. Um, we don't have any data on uh, when exactly folks are hunting. I think all of us uh, assume that you know the the hunting pressure tails off quite a bit towards the end of the season. Um, but we don't have any data to draw on to say officially that yeah, you know, folks aren't aren't out there at at that time of year. And, um, so, from my perspective as a biologist, um, you know, a lot of the research out there says that um, harvesting rough grouse really doesn't impact the population. That um, you know, they experience fairly high annual mortality. Of, you know maybe 50 to 70 percent even in a given year. And so uh, a lot of the research from the 1930s right on up into the uh, early 2000s has shown that hunting doesn't necessarily impact the, the population. Um, there is some limited research out there that was done. Um, uh, one study, uh, a current study that was done back in 2011 was done on willow, willow time again, so a fairly similar species, another upland game bird and showed that late-season harvest uh, could have negative impacts on the population. So I think the motivations for the, the folks that were making this recommendation were, um, you know, there's there's some fear of the unknown. Again, we don't have confirmation of West Nile virus, um, and we can't really say what, what caused this unexpected decline. And so I think their hope is um, that even if the, the literature doesn't necessarily support uh, shortening the season that perhaps limiting some of that late season pressure could provide some benefits to the birds. Got it. Got it. Appreciate that, that kind of overview. And, and I mean, yeah, I, I would imagine that, that anybody proposing to shorten the grouse season, I, I want to believe that, that the intentions are, are for the benefit of the bird and, and to, to ensure that, that this tradition and, and this thing that we all love persists for sure. You know, so many, and now, now we, you know, we're armchair quarterbacking and, and there's a lot of, there's, there's been a lot of time for people to discuss and chat and, and I've done it in my circle of friends and you propose different ideas and we talk about, you know, if we're, if we're really trying to save birds, why don't we reduce the bag limit or why don't we start the season two weeks later? Or why don't we, you know, if you want to limit the harvest after November 30th, let's talk about that. And there, there's so many other, there's so many other ideas that, that are now coming to the surface really because this conversation has been, has been broached. Um, I guess importantly, again, this isn't an official decision. And if people have those opinions and people have those ideas, they're free to submit the, that commentary. Do, is there a, is there a scenario mark in where this, what does become official, if anything on August 8th, could it, could it look different than what has been proposed right now? Um, I, I suppose there would be opportunity for the proposal to be amended. Um, I, again, uh, not being terribly familiar with this process, I, I don't know um, what exactly that would look like, but my understanding is that um, the Natural Resources Board could potentially have a different final outcome uh, after the August 8th meeting. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah, not, we're not a hundred percent certain on that and, and, uh, and that's okay. Uh, the, uh, I'm sure uh, more information will come out, but I certainly am not a wildlife biologist, but I've done enough reading over the years to, I've read all of that stuff where typically what has been studied and and what has been found is that 
hunting is is not additive to the to rough grouse mortality it's compensatory and and i think people are often quick to point out that certainly you could you could find a scenario in a localized area if a cover if a cover is not if if a cover is not connected to uh, if it's more isolated and a bunch of people go in there and shoot a bunch of birds, sure, you could shoot out a cover, but you almost have, if if habitat is that segregated and that parcelized and segmented, you've got bigger problems really than, than that cover being shot out. Sure. It's, it comes down to habitat, I guess is, is what I'm getting at. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of of habitat to rough grouse? Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's safe to say there's no single factor that's more important from a population perspective than than habitat. These are these are birds that depend on active forest management uh, to maintain or create young forest habitat. Um, unfortunately, throughout a, a lot of the United States and including Wisconsin, we've seen uh, fairly significant declines in the timber industry over the last uh, 20 years or so. Uh, the timber industry has really been, um, you know, a huge boon for, for rough grouse. They're creating a lot of that, uh, that young forest habitat through, uh, through uh, forest management practices. So uh, I'd say, uh, again, um, you know, the, the habitat is what provides them winter food resources. It's what provides them cover during nesting and broodering season. So it's absolutely essential for, uh, for a healthy population to have adequate adequate habitat. And I guess in relation to uh, disease and some of the other concerns that are lingering out there, too, um, I, I previously mentioned Pennsylvania had, uh, had concluded that it appeared, at least, that West Nile virus impacts were most significant in areas with low-quality habitat. That, uh, that could mean that the birds aren't as in good of condition on that site and may be more susceptible to disease mortality. Um, I think, you know, that, that's perhaps a stretch. It's um, something I certainly couldn't point to any literature and, and cite. But uh, I think the more important factor might be that uh, habitat, suitable habitat provides an opportunity for populations to recover quickly from any, um, you know, single years of, of poor production or, or disease outbreak as well. So I, I guess I couldn't uh, couldn't overstate the importance of, of habitat for rough grouse. Got it. All right, Mark, and one other thing I think that is that is important to, uh, to mention, I know you and I talked about it and you wanted to bring it up, and that sort of using, using what is happening right now sort of as fuel or ammunition or however you want to phrase it, Wisconsin is talking about talking about a rough grouse management plan right now. That is that is something new, right? Correct. Yes, we've we've not had a rough grouse management plan in the state of Wisconsin prior, uh, but given the current interest, uh, certainly as well as some of the ideas that um, we've kind of been kicking around over the last few years in the Upland Wildlife Program here, uh, now seems like the the right time and place to launch into a management planning effort. So over the next, um, I'll say maybe year and a half to two years. Uh, we'll be working with the public, working with our stakeholder groups to gather input on the current uh, rough grouse season framework, uh, identifying new research priorities, uh, really just getting a, a snapshot in time right now of, of where the grouse population is at, and then certainly setting some objectives for where we want the population to be in the future. Excellent. That's uh, that's that's certainly great to hear. What what I know I know it's early in the process, but what types of what other types of things, kind of initiatives, do you see? you know, maybe comparing to a, a management plan that you have for another species. I mean, what kinds of things could, could happen, could this mean for rough grouse in Wisconsin? 
Sure. Um, well, certainly identifying some research priorities I think will be important uh, for, for uh, future management actions with the, uh, with the population. Um, and I think there's a lot of room, too, for uh, some new marketing strategies for grouse. Here in Wisconsin, uh, we're one of the top three rough grouse hunting states consistently in the country. And um, I think we have some opportunities to, to market ourselves as such and, and uh, draw uh, a spotlight on, on this fantastic resource that we have here in the state. All right, one more time for the listeners. If they want to find out more about more about West Nile virus, rough grouse populations, what's happening right now with uh, with uh, the shorten the the proposed shortening of the season and and submit commentary where can they go uh, to find out specifically about what's what's going on in Wisconsin yeah i would direct them to the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources website um, we'll be putting out i think fairly regular news releases on the topic throughout the summer there's some already there from uh, from uh, previous releases as well uh, we'll be Placing information on our social media sites, uh, including Facebook. Okay, excellent. All right, I'll try to I'll try to uh, to circle circle back and, and put a bunch of those links in uh, in the notes on the podcast when we post on our website. I will I will grab the video that you posted to Facebook a while back, and if you don't mind, I'll, I'll throw kind of your contact information in there just in case people have specific questions and want to reach out to you. Is that all right, Mark? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Excellent. Well, I, I really appreciate you joining us on the Project Upland podcast. This this was this was informational for me. I, I, I enjoy talking to you, and uh, it's obviously it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart and your heart, and a lot of our listeners as well. So we appreciate your time, and we will uh, e- eagerly await additional information to come out on on uh, all the things that we talked about. And uh, in the meantime, we'll keep looking forward to fall. Excellent. Very good. Been my pleasure, and. Uh been a been a joy and hopefully uh folks at least are excited about um being able to get involved in in the project and and help out i think uh that's one of the great things that could come from you know this unfortunate event of the decline in the population is that um we've seen a lot of willingness from uh from the hunting community to just volunteer jump right in and, and help out so a uh, great opportunity i think for for the agency to, to work with our, our hunters and stakeholders to tackle this topic and learn about it together. Yeah, absolutely. If, uh, if this serves as a wake up call and, and everybody jumps back, jumps back on the bandwagon, if maybe we, maybe, uh, we weren't paying attention and, and, uh, we can work towards a, towards a goal of, of, uh, making more rough grouse out there. That's, uh, that would be a good thing. So let's, uh, let's try to turn it into a positive. I'm with you, Mark. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Have a great day. Thanks. See ya. been listening to the project upland podcast that does it for this episode as your host i would like to personally thank you for listening to this episode of the show and remind you that we are brought to you by our friends at pine ridge grouse camp and onyx maps head over to projectupland.com we've got it all for you there articles videos more great stuff from project upland and northwoods collective check it out at projectupland.com and don't forget You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast gear giveaway. All you have to do is subscribe to this podcast, hit that little subscribe button, leave us a rating, leave us a review, and share the podcast post. You could be next week's winner. Also, we would love to hear from you. Please use the contact form at projectupland.com or send me an email directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. 
We could talk about bird dogs. We could talk about shotguns. We could talk about hunting trips you have planned. We can talk about future podcast guest suggestions. I would love to hear from you. Send me an email. That's it for this week's episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.